Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We got a great show for you today. Our guests are the founders behind Foresight Mental Health a startup that is revolutionizing mental health care through the use of modern technology, delivering highly personalized data-backed treatment plans to each patient while helping psychiatrists prescribe medication more safely and efficiently. In today's episode, we discuss Foresight's origin story and the vision our guests have to apply technology to radically improve mental health care. We get into the lack of technology adoption by psychiatrists that exist today and what it took to build a fully integrated model from scratch to serve patients and healthcare providers alike using data to drive a new standard of care. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. Tennis is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with Tennis members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10East.co. That's the number 10East.co. Please enjoy this episode with Foresight's founders, Doug Hateman and Matthew Milford. Welcome to the show, Doug Hateman and Matthew Milford. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're really excited. Well, guys, we got a couple cow bears on the podcast. The last time I was in Berkeley, I've only played Frisbee golf like three times in my life, but there was a Frisbee golf course in Berkeley. I was playing with a buddy at business school and I went full 10 cup. I don't know if you guys saw the movie 10 cup, but there's a hole with some water. I must've lost 12 Frisbees on that hole. And there was a little guy sitting there with some beers, selling beers and Frisbees. And they must've been like 10 bucks each, but he had the best business model of all time. I needed the services of your clinics afterwards because I was struggling that day. Anyway, look, it's great to have you guys. We're going to spend some time on your startup. This is going to be a lot of fun. Would love to hear a little bit about the origin story. Did you guys meet in CS101 and concoct this idea? How was, uh, what were the beginnings? Yeah, absolutely. So Doug and I met at Berkeley. We were both studying in some of the same computer science classes. And yeah, as you can imagine, we had a lot of time in front of a whiteboard where when we weren't working, we'd be thinking about different problems in the world, specifically in healthcare, that we could apply technology to really improve care. And so, yeah, that was kind of the initial how we met and really developed our friendship. And that kind of segued into Foresight pretty soon after that, within a year. And what was the inspiration? I mean, you guys just sitting, having coffee, having a beer, just shooting the shit and said, you know what, I think mental health is an issue. Or was it kind of just looking around at what's going on in the community, in the world, people walking around like zombies at the bus stop with their phones? What was the initial inspiration? 
Yeah, well, definitely both of us have some personal interest in, in mental health care, and this might come across as a bit dark after those two points. But I was actually studying abroad in Nice in France when I got interested in mental health care. For Bastille Day, there was a pretty big event for watching fireworks just down on the promenade. And if you're familiar with the event, there was a large terrorist attack that happened that night uh, where a truck came and careened into about 80 people and killed them, one of which, uh, one of those individuals was my good friend, and a number of other of my friends were hit by the truck. Coming back to Berkeley, seeing the mental illness from that event, uh, almost everyone had depression, anxiety, PTSD, trauma, as you can imagine, uh, understandably. Seeing them trying to find a therapist or psychiatrist was really horrific, honestly. Like most of them were getting on three month waiting lists, paying hundreds of dollars out of pocket. The quality of care that was received, I, I mean, this treatment approach is decades outdated and really in need of, of a new methodology of treatment. And so seeing that was my personal interest in mental health care. And both Doug and I were really passionate about applying technology to fix this problem. So that was kind of the genesis concept. All right. So walk me forward. So you guys said, look, this is something that there's potentially a need for. Was it a scenario that you guys kind of went through the process and said, man, this doesn't feel right. It's broken. Was it something that you just started to study? How would kind of the company actually get its start? Yeah. So the first part there was just learning and absorbing everything we could about the market, deficiencies, kind of the gold standard is in mental health care today. So we spent months and months leveraging resources at Berkeley, talking to professors, lab directors, people in the industry. We first were looking at an approach. We knew access and affordability were big issues. We first wanted to tackle the care itself. We found it to be really lacking, as Matt was touching on, really based in, in archaic methods in diagnosing, treatment selection, and monitoring. We first got started with... Just to interrupt you real quick, because the way that I think about it, I have plenty of friends that are psychiatrists and therapists of various forms, and I don't have that deep of an experience personally with this sort of model. But what I have in mind, I feel like what a lot of people have in mind is something almost like goodwill hunting, where it's someone you're like straight out of Freud laying down on a couch or laying down on a bed someone's asking questions. You don't really know what's going on. It seems sort of philosophical almost. Is that sort of like an accurate representation or is that totally off? What is sort of the standard of care that you saw maybe a mismatch of the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty close. We met with hundreds of psychiatrists in person throughout this kind of discovery phase. And yeah, it's this dialogue Q&A type process, like, how are you feeling today? How has that changed over the last couple of weeks? How have you been sleeping? And yeah, it's just very based on this like qualitative conversational type interaction. Yeah, I mean, advances in healthcare that we've seen in, in other fields, leveraging technology and data just aren't there at all for, for mental health care. Yeah, on a side note, Goodwill Hunting is one of my favorite movies of all time. So I, I appreciate the reference there. So, okay, you guys kind of did like an initial assessment. And then your initial idea, I think, is a little different than actually what you're doing today. Maybe kind of walk us through that whole process of actually getting the company started and what was the initial approach? First, we were looking at treatment selection, specifically in medication selection. So we were working on bringing 
precision medicine into mental health care and in, into psychiatry. So analyzing a number of factors about the patient, the individual, and assisting the psychiatrist in prescribing medication more safely, more effectively. So yeah, that was the original entry point. And yeah, through that process, we met with and, and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of psychiatrists and really dove deeper into what this market actually looks like day to day. What are they doing today in diagnosing and, and understanding the individual and, and mental state of the individual in front of them, how they go about selecting treatment, and then continuing to monitor and track the efficacy of treatment that's being performed. It's funny you guys mentioned that because my background is actually also as an engineer, as a biotech guy. And when I was in grad school over a decade ago, the thing that was, I remember being a project for a class was, was a very similar issue where so many patients would not get screened at all for, in this example, is how they metabolize the drugs. And so having people that were fast metabolizers and slow metabolizers in the process seem so antiquated where they would prescribe a medicine and, oh, if you have an adverse reaction, well, maybe we'll prescribe less or, hey, if it's not working, we'll prescribe some more. And that seemed a bit odd in the 21st century. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about how the initial uptake was. How did you guys go about actually starting to roll this idea out? Yeah. In hindsight, I think we're focused a little bit too much on building the technology uh, at the beginning. We both have also engineering backgrounds. So we worked for a while on building out the technology platform. And then, yeah, kind of we're working on a bunch of customer development, learning about how this work uh, fits into workflows and incentives and stuff like that. So, yeah, we were going kind of one by one in this very fragmented mental health care landscape, very bottoms up, just meeting a bunch of people, demoing, getting them on board on the platform. That was the approach we were taking there. Just one thing to add on there, a like obvious approach that we could have taken would be going towards like, why not go towards a network of providers like a health system? The And we did. The pushback we received was these providers have an electronic medical record like Epic. So getting them to change their clinical workflows or jump onto a new system during patient interactions is incredibly challenging. That's the problem many digital health companies face. Uh, so we felt a easier go-to market strategy, at least initially, was these kind of solo practitioners, which unsurprisingly also proved challenging due to many of the same uh, problems. All right. So walk us through as far as timeline. What year is this? Where are you guys in the process? Are you still in school? So computer science classes, Matt was talking about, that was, let's see, fall of 2016. And yeah, that kind of initial research and learning phase was, was that fall. And then, so we were still in school at that point. We worked on developing the product and platform over that winter and spring, and then worked on it full time over the summer. So that was summer of 2017. And then, yeah, focusing on that go to market strategy there throughout the summer and fall of 2017. So, yeah, that summer we worked on it full time and we were really, really working hard. We kind of came to the realization that, look, like this is something we want to continue to pursue. There's just absolutely no way we could spend the amount of time we were spending on the company and take classes on top of it. So that summer we were working really hard. And finally, yeah, I made the decision that we'll take a semester off to see how it goes and then continue to decide either way. 
go back to taking classes or continue working on the full time. Was that the point when you guys decided to pursue fundraising? Yeah, it was that fall and then going into the winter there. And what was that process? I mean, what was the decision there? I mean, did you say, look, we clearly need to to raise some money for this. We can't bootstrap it. What was kind of the idea genesis? Yeah, I mean, we were working for free and like a lot of sweat equity, obviously, at this point. And people were working on our team for very low wages because they believed in the vision that we had. And yeah, that's just not financially viable to operate with or realistic to operate with that mentality. We raised capital, 500K, to really build out our feature set on our product and then get to market. Obviously, we ended up pivoting, which we're getting to, but that 500K was able to deliver the first clinical setting that we had. All right, you guys raised a little money, starting to build your team. What's next? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We raised 500K and leveraged that capital to really drive the sales funnel. Ran into a lot of, well, we unearthed a lot of problems in mental health during that process. We found that a lot of psychiatrists were very reluctant to change their clinical behaviors, specifically getting onto new software systems, utilizing new digital health tools. Yeah, really huge lack of infrastructure, actually. I mean, most of the psychiatrists we talked with in the Bay Area, one of the most high-tech areas in the world, didn't even have a computer in their office. So deploying software infrastructure without the computers already being in the offices was really challenging, as you can imagine. Like, Not only are you dealing with typical digital health go-to-market problems, just complete lack of technology infrastructure to support what we were building. And we realized if we wanted to fully grasp our vision uh, across this disparate network of psychiatrists, the only way to do it would be a fully integrated model where we just start from scratch and have the providers directly on staff. So that's when we pivoted around the end of spring, early summer of 2018. Was that pretty painful at the time? Was it a situation where like, dude, we just dropped out of school. This is clearly like whatever it is, is kind of the product market fit maybe is not there or just we're going to try something else. Was that a tough time? Was that an easy decision? Yeah. To give you a sense of how excruciating that was, imagine working many, many, many all-nighters, 12, 15-hour days for a year straight and having little to no success with product delivery, even with initial proof points of, wow, this is a technology that could actually change psychiatry and the market's just not ready for anything like that. So absolutely excruciating. And yeah, flipping into a new model is no easy decision by any means. And a lot of people thought we were crazy going from like a lean software approach to what appears to be a capital intensive like brick and mortar business. And were most of the investors at this point, they're just like, hey, you guys go pound sand. We didn't sign up for this. Were they supportive? What was the uh, reaction? I think generally our investors have been really supportive of us. And yeah, this was, I mean, credit to them. This was a huge new endeavor, virtually a completely new model, although we were still leveraging the software we developed at the core, completely new business application with a lot of learnings to be made. So we spent that whole summer working extremely aggressively and hard on learning how to go ahead and launch a clinic. And our first clinic launched in Berkeley in July of 2018. I mean, we knew it would be successful because we'd seen the supply demand imbalance. There's just this ridiculously high demand for mental health care services. 
unmet need, especially on the insurance side. I mean, people are paying hundreds of dollars out of pocket. If you're able to accept insurance and see them, there's going to be a, a need for that. But really what we created was an ecosystem now that we could develop new digital health applications, breakthrough modules to change both what data is collected, how it's structured and standardized, and also the actual treatment delivery. Maybe walk me through to the extent you can that it's not proprietary, but from someone who's been to obviously doctors in various settings my whole life, having experienced the one medical model, walk me through kind of what it's like for someone that shows up to one of these clinics or take it from the provider standpoint. What are the big differences? Like what is the key when you say technology, that means a lot of things to a lot of people, but whether it's the tests, whether it's how the whole process works. What can you kind of describe that would be different than a traditional old school setting? We have a lot of digital touch points with the patients outside of the clinical setting, which is very atypical in a market or industry where it's largely non-continuous measurement. We've also managed to uh, drive a lot of objective data to track outcomes in, again, a field that's largely based on qualitative subjective data for outcome measuring and have developed a number of our own modules and partnerships with companies working on both diagnostic systems and treatment recommendation engines. So those are a few of the areas we're playing around in and have significant technology that we've developed. And so if someone's listening to this and they have either personally a friend, a family member that's interested in treatment, what are the current resources that you would recommend today? Is it something that you can log in to uh, go to Foresight, find a clinic, set up an appointment. Is that sort of the recommended? And it, I don't even know at this point, is it almost universally covered by insurance? Is it never covered by insurance? What's the typical standard of payment? Yeah, we're covered by just about every insurance company. And so, yeah, it just comes down to typically a $15, $20 copay per visit. And so as far as resources for the people that are interested in, in seeking treatment that probably haven't, you guys did quite a bit of research and study going into this. What sort of the, any recommendations, any process that you think would be helpful? The first step is just to get help. And the individual needs to be on the same page, want to get better, want to get healthier and happier. Typically, if you're trying to use insurance, as most people would like to do. Insurance plans are a good resource to go to. They usually have online portals where you can search for covered providers in your area. And yeah, that is a first step. Just find someone that will take your insurance that'll drive the cost down significantly. And yeah, that would be my recommendation. But yeah, first, certainly recognize to that you'd like to get help. And then yeah, go from there. So you have, I talked to so many friends that are psychiatrists and you have what you mentioned earlier, which is a supply demand imbalance where I think I saw on your deck that it's something like 20 or 25% of the population could be eligible for some sort of mental illness treatment, but very few people actually treat it. But despite that, those large numbers, there tends to be a pretty strong demand for psychiatrists. So what is the main gating factor of, so you started to build this, you had a clinic how do you convince therapists to actually join? What's in it for them? What's kind of the big benefits of this tech-enabled structure? Yeah, I mean, attracting talent, I think, is a huge competitive advantage we have over most health services companies or health systems. 
we have this vision of recreating mental health care with technology to make people happier and healthier. And that vision is unique. And we've had tangible steps towards that provider that providers get extremely excited about. Uh, so we have huge volume of people interested in joining Foresight as a result. What is sort of the, I assume you guys are hiring as you expand, partnering. How does it work? Is it a partnership? Is it something where, how does a traditional model set up with the therapist or psychiatrist you guys employ? You know, we work really closely with our providers on developing these technology-based and data-driven solutions. So our network of providers really gives us quite an advantage in developing some of these solutions. Like we currently have about 60 providers on our team and they each have specialties and interests that whether it's sleep or exercise or, or some more esoteric treatment method that we can then take, develop that into a digital health solution and expand that expertise and expand that knowledge uh, across the organization so everyone can have access to that particular specialty um, or, or specific knowledge that maybe they picked up in their education process, their uh, experience in the clinic. And yeah, really take that knowledge and proliferate it throughout the organization. And that's just an example of enabling our providers with best-in-class knowledge or, or tools that then can be used to treat every Foresight member. And so you started with one clinic, you now have more than one clinic. Talk to me a little bit about the whole build-out process. Yeah, we're up to now about 12 clinics, been growing extremely rapidly on that front. But yeah, I think that's something we've really figured out pretty well-developed methodologies now for launching clinics. And yeah, something we'll continue to do for the next uh, couple of years. Launching a clinic is no easy business. It took us a lot of time to figure out how to do that. But yeah, I think one area we are strong in is the capital efficiency at which we launch these clinics. And it is a unique differentiator. Most health services companies launching new clinics is upwards of 500 to $2 million to build out a clinic. For us, it's a lot cheaper than that, uh, like a 10x difference. We find ourselves now, walk forward 2019, 2020, the year is over, the decade is upon us. You started to raise some more money last summer? Yeah, we started around like April, in hindsight, not the best time to raise with the summer. That ended up going exceptionally well, uh, attracted a lot of great investors on board. And that capital, we raised about $1.3 million, and that allowed us to scale from 1 to 12 clinics. Awesome. This is a California story at this point, you guys across the country? <laughs> we're not a national group at the moment, but yeah, that's something we're interested and excited about the opportunity to help more individuals. Right now, we're based in California, though. So you're obviously early stages. This is something you're going to give a go for a while. Talk to me a little bit about what's the eventual vision for this? As you look out to the horizon, what's the future look like? Creating a new standard of mental health care, leveraging technology to drive access and affordability through lower level providers, or rather no psychiatrists, essentially, because there's a huge shortage. I mean, it's definition of technology-enabled services, but leveraging lower level providers with technology without sacrificing on quality of care, that's our vision, is to proliferate this new standard of care for diagnosing, treating and monitoring patients and driving immensely better outcomes at a lower cost. And what's on the flip side? Say you're a therapist. And so you guys are pretty early in the process, but I imagine eventually a benefit of this sort of approach is 
you start to have access to a fair amount of data sets. And I imagine there's probably not a whole lot that you can actually divine from the amount of sessions you've had already. Maybe you can. And so I would love to hear about it. Are there any major levers that you think are different than traditional? So maybe it's like, hey, we noticed that the outcomes of using meditation and exercise actually have a far greater impact than we thought, or maybe that actually the prescription of antidepressants is too widespread or too much or not enough. Is there anything in general that you can talk to? I mean, I know you guys aren't psychiatrists, but as far as the whole process that you said, oh man, this is interesting. It's starting to be some insights from all the data we're collecting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're hitting on the nail right there. I mean, we have this data set where we can start to identify patterns and drive insights to the point of clinical care on cohorts of similar patients who receive medication X and see positive outcomes or negative outcomes and drive change in clinician decisions based on that. Similar things can be said for exercise, sleep, and, and how they impact mental health symptoms. And then on the flip side, actually identifying new biomarkers to detect potential best treatment options or shifts in, in mental state. So a number of different objective data streams that we're looking at, among which include wearables. And yeah, that data can really drive a new standard of care. What would the wearables, I mean, I'm just curious where we are in that sort of knowledge base. So it's sort of like the genome sequencing. You're starting to get some interesting information. How useful at this point in 2020 is the wearable information? And what sort of data is particularly interesting from the wearable standpoint? Yeah, I'll touch on some of the questions that I can speak to. The wearable, like exercise and sleep data specifically, I mean, exercise and sleep are huge impact confounding variables in mental health. Lots of clinical research on that validating this approach. But the exciting part here is really more continuous quantitative data on those two pieces, whereas today it's largely discontinuous and qualitative data. And it seems like a fair amount of patients are, are simply medicated today, whether it's with just antidepressants or any other medications. Do you have any general thoughts on y'all's clinics versus a typical clinic? I'm sure there's some templates of what the standard prescriptions and status are. Is it something that you see any particular trends that stand out where you're like, hey, actually, because of our approach, people are less medicated or they have different medications or it's a cocktail approach or in fact, you know, I saw a very in your early days, it talked about drug interactions where patients may not even be screened for some of the interactions that would be harmful. Is there any general kind of thoughts or takeaways on that topic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're able to show clinical efficacy, reducing severe to mild symptoms in just five visits. This isn't a randomized controlled trial, so it's difficult to compare. But contrasting with the industry today, that's exceptional. I mean, just with psychotropic medications, 40% of the first antidepressants given don't even work, and it takes six weeks to figure that out. So right away, you're seeing huge strides towards improved care, and that's largely driven by inventing this new standard of care and getting the best-in-class providers. Looking at the cost-effectiveness, I think that's an area we'll really start to aggregate more and more data on as we scale but yeah, again, treating people faster at the end of the day is cheaper. And how is the general sort of company philosophy? Because I imagine if you contract with a bunch of different therapists, they're going to have different approaches. How much of this is sort of a top-down, like 
one voice for the firm where you're like, look, this is our approach. This is what we do. And how much of it is actually bespoke, customized to the actual therapist? Because I, I imagine if you were to go to five different therapists from five different companies, you'd have probably five totally different approaches and prescriptions and diagnosis. I mean, maybe not totally different, but is that something you try to make it a, a firm-wide experience? Or is it something that you give them pretty wide berth on being able to customize their own sort of practice? Yeah, phenomenal understanding of like what it looks like today. I mean, you go to different providers, you you often could get a, a different diagnosis or treatment path that you get funneled into. Outcome measuring is different from provider to provider. And part of what we're building is really this way to objectively, in a standardized way, assess patients and f- figure out the optimal treatment path. That being said, Within our provider group, there's absolutely individuals with different specializations. And how that works today is personal practice experience and individual training uh, really drives a lot of their treatment methodologies. And then our technology enhances that. But as we continue to scale, ideally, we're able to extract those insights from their personal practice experience and proliferate them throughout our network of providers, uh, leveraging our software platform as a medium to do so. Yeah. You know, it's just curious because you look at so much of the world today where there is quantitative objective evidence about something. I mean, this is obviously not related, but the NFL coaches that objectively should make certain play calls, particularly the fourth down and punting is a good example, but that clearly just don't do what's in their best interest for various behavioral reasons. What is the approach of standard of care? So if you look back, say 50 years ago, the USDA used to have the food pyramid that said you're supposed to eat 10 servings a day of cereal and bread and pasta. And whether you think that's inverted or different now, it's certainly not stuff your face with processed foods and sugars. How is sort of the, does foresight in, incorporate new peer-reviewed knowledge and standard of care? Is it driven from sort of your advisors where it's Jerry or Keeley? Is it driven by any sort of process that you guys put in place? How does that knowledge base grow? How do we deliver these new insights to the point of care that we're starting to identify or extract from personal practice experience? So there's a number of different ways we can deploy those insights. One is our precision medicine software. So that's at the point of prescription decision making. So starting to integrate historic data into that, as well as a new literature that's coming out that can be leveraged in real time for prescription decisions across our network of prescribers. On the diagnostic side, Similar, uh, but just a different module. So looking at our, some of our technology modules there, we can integrate new streams of data into the same user interface, which is already being used today to drive more accurate and comprehensive diagnostics. So vision for the future. Walk me through 2025, 2030. What's the world look like? How are things going to change for you guys? What's on your mind? Yeah, I think what we really at the core of what we're doing is a couple points. One is driving affordable and accessible mental health care. So being able to get into a provider rapidly and without having to pay hundreds of dollars out of pocket. At a baseline, that's definitely something we want to hit on. Driving more of a science rather than an art into mental health care. So leveraging data and technology to standardize more of the diagnosing process, recommending treatments, and then also defining how to define an outcome in mental health care. So that's an area we're looking to reinvent. And then finally, comprehensiveness in in treatment services. Right now, it's largely solo practitioners, a lot of siloed information. 
So aggregating this data across a network and being able to provide comprehensive treatment services is an area of key interest. And for clarification, is your current model where you're charging the patient and, and then the insurer, is it just a per appointment model or is it a monthly subscription model? How does it actually work? Yeah, right now it's a fee-for-service model uh, with the insurance company. Yeah, we're exploring different avenues there. Value-based care is, is becoming a hot topic in healthcare. We, we certainly think that trend will continue and we're excited to see that transition to mental health care. I just wonder, like, you know, as we look to the future, I mean, particularly so many people in y'all's demographic, but also older generations too, theoretically, if you're really good at what you guys do, it's actually probably a negative for the business model because you may not have to see the therapist so much, but rather if you have all these touch points of, hey, look, I'm now incorporating exercise and better nutrition and I can check in via, I don't know, just saying like a one medical model, you can check in via chat or email or text-based that you may not actually have to go into the appointments. The main driver is actually this wellness. It will be curious to see how that evolves over the years because theoretically, if you guys are (laughs) really good, you may not need to see the therapist as much in the future. I don't know. It's an interesting kind of idea. Yeah, we, like I said, are are very excited for mental health care to shift to like at-risk value-based models. We think we'll be well positioned to take full advantage of that. And yeah, exactly. We, we want people to be healthy and, and happy and not coming in for appointments. Because the traditional therapist charges what? Like it's like lawyer fees, right? For the insurance companies, like 500 bucks an hour or something? Yeah, psychiatrists can be up there. Just therapists are 100 or a couple hundred up to. Interesting. Yeah. Because I mean, theoretically, if you're an insurance company and you say, hey, look, we have a patient, but the wellness would be even better if if they weren't coming. Anyway, (laughs) I'm just curious thinking about it, but cool. We ask everyone this, you guys are on the founder series, but because it's an investment podcast, we ask anyway, and we'd love to hear what both of y'all's most memorable investments have been. If you're even involved that much in investing at your age, were you guys crypto guys? What's been the most memorable investments over the years? I went through a, a crypto, f- well, I guess I'm still in it. Um, <laughs> I uh, invested a little bit, made a, a ton, and then have settled back down to a little bit again. <laughs> so it, it would have been a great investment. <laughs> we'll see. But yeah, that's, that's kind of, I'm sure a lot of people have, have had that experience. Yeah, I definitely have a similar similar experience in crypto. But yeah, I mean, Tesla's doing well, I guess. <laughs> this is a position you own or have or just curious? Yeah, I mean, obviously at, at our age, nothing significant or substantial. But yeah, I'm personally fairly on Tesla, despite many financial analysts uh, shorting it. $100 billion company this week. So they must be doing something right. Look, guys, I think this has been interesting helpful. Where do people find out more information if they're curious from any standpoint, if they are interested in treatment, if they're interested in partnering with the company as an employee, as they're interested in an investor, where do people go find out more about you guys, what you're up to? Foresightmentalhealth.com is where we are online. And then LinkedIn probably for Matt and I would be the best place for us directly. Well, gents, thanks so much for taking the time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. All right, listeners, shoot us an email, feedback at Show.com. We love listening to feedback. Give us a review. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Breaker, which is my current favorite. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.